When I was about 30 years old, um, long time ago, um, my, my dad lived in Michigan. Um, I lived in Michigan until I was about six or seven, and then my mom and I, after they divorced, moved to California. So when I was about 30, I'm my dad's only child, and um, he wanted to be closer to me, and he wanted to be closer to his only grandchildren, my three boys. So he decided to move to California. So um, he was there about a year, and then he decided to drive back to Michigan. It's about a three-day drive just to spend time with his parents, my grandparents. Um, and he, he decided to go for about 30 days. And so he went, and um, I was excited for him. And um, around the time that he was headed back to California on his drive, my, my grandmother called me from Michigan. Now, this is a rare occurrence because she's in that, she was in that time frame of we don't make long-distance calls because that's way too expensive. And in my whole life, although I would like to believe, I know it's true, I was her favorite grandchild, um, I think she called me once in my entire life. So for this phone call to come in, I knew it probably wasn't good news. So I answered the phone, and basically she said that your dad isn't well, and he won't, he won't own up to it. He won't do what he needs to do. He won't go to the doctor, and so when he gets back to California, I need to take care of that, and so I assured her that I would. Around the next day, my dad walked in. 30 days, haven't seen him, and I kid you not, he probably was about 25 pounds lighter. And so I looked at him, and I said, get right back in that car. And he fought me, and I said, either I take you to the hospital or the ambulance, the paramedics do. And so we went to the uh, emergency room and waited. And after hours of waiting and testing and all of those things, the doctor came in and basically diagnosed him with cirrhosis of the liver. Um, the doctor said that he would, need to get it, he would need to get on the donor list for a new liver but they, he wouldn't be able to do that until he was six months sober because my dad was an alcoholic. So we got into the car, him and I, and um, he was pretty ill. I don't honestly know how he drove three days to California and made it safely, but um, we decided that he would move in with me so that I could help take care of him, and he would practice sobriety. And we were going to make that six-month mark, and we were going to... Um, you know, start to create a new life for him. So we walk in the house. It's pretty late at that point, about uh, 9.30. My kids were with my mom at the time. My mom, the, my mom lived about two hours away. She dropped my kids off in the meantime when we got home from the hospital. And so then she left and headed home, and I started to get the kids ready for bed, my three boys. They were about um, five Hill was about five, and eight, and 11 at the time. And I told my dad, my dad was in a lot of stomach pain, and so I told him that I would um, go to the 24-hour pharmacy to get his pain meds once I got the kids in bed. So as I'm getting the kids rounded up and, and ready to go to bed, the phone rings. And it was about 10 o'clock at night. And so we know if the phone rings at 10, that's probably not the best news. So 
Um, I answer the phone, and it's my husband at the time, the boy's dad. It was his best friend. Now, I want to share a little bit of a backstory before I move on in my story. Um, my marriage, we had been married half of my, we had been together half of my life. Um, we were high school sweethearts. And the marriage was pretty difficult most of the time. And so my husband had addiction issues. And in this season of my life, I was at the point where I was pretty fed up. As much as I loved him and begged and pleaded with God and him to change and to be the husband and the dad that we longed for him to be, um, a few days prior to this day, I had filed for divorce. That doesn't mean I didn't love him and that I didn't want him to make the changes that I had longed for, but I just could no longer um, live in the consequences of his addiction and his choices. So when I answered the phone, this was an odd thing, that his best friend was calling me. And on the other end, there was intensity, and, and there was crying. And he said, Jen, Tom's been in a terrible motorcycle accident, and you need to get here immediately. And so he told me where he was, and that was just a few, a few miles down the road. And I said, OK, I, I, I'm on my way. And he said, Jen, it's not good. And so I hung up the phone, and I told my dad, watch the boys. Tom's been in a motorcycle accident. And so I drove to the scene. And um, I mean, it felt like there were hundreds of people. I'm sure there weren't. But there were groves of people, as well as police and um, paramedics. And as I parked the car, probably in the middle of the road, um, I started to run towards what I assumed where he was at. And I could see from a distance, I could see a paramedic performing CPR. And he was on a gurney. And so as I tried to run in closer, um, a, two police officers got in my way, asked who I was, and told me that I needed to go to the nearest trauma hospital, that that's where they were taking him. And so I don't, to be honest, know even how I got there. I know I was in the back of a car, but I don't know what car or who was driving. I remember praying all the way. And I started to realize something. I started to tell myself, this is it. This is his wake-up call. This is what I've been praying about. This is what I've been fasting about. This is what I've been pleading over and begging God for. This is his wake-up call. And so when we pulled into the hospital, um, there was a nurse and a security guard waiting for me. And my gut knew that probably wasn't the best news, but my heart and my mind were fighting to, to, against that reality. And so they both kind of got on both sides of me, and it was really odd. The nurse put her, looped her arm in my arm, and started, we started to walk, and I said, I, I want to see my husband. And they said, I know, but we need to take you into a room because we need to talk to you. And that's part of why she looped her arm in, because I didn't want to go to that room. So as I'm walking, I can hear groaning and crying so deep I had never heard before in, in real life and, and truly had never heard since. 
And I knew exactly who it was. I walked in. It was his stepmom and his sister. And they told me that Tom had died of cardiac arrest. Essentially, he hit a wall full force on a motorcycle head first. When I got home that night, obviously my house was full. There was a lot of chaos. Five months after that, my dad died of cirrhosis of the liver. And although he was sober, he missed the mark by a month. And until that season of my life, I had never lost anything or anyone. I had never experienced death, not even the death of a pet. I didn't know what grief was. I mean, of course I heard the word, but I had no idea what I was about to embark on. And to be honest, I had three young boys and a house to take care of, and at first I was barely surviving. So as our pastor, our sweet pastor, has, he asked me last week to preach, and I immediately went into prayer over what do I talk about, and I just sensed in my spirit grief, that word grief just kept coming and coming and coming, because I know for me, I wish that I would have been somewhat educated around this crazy, crazy process of grief. Um, and so today is going to be the first part to a two-part talk. So they, um, Pastor Chris and Lisa planned a vacation before his dad passed away um, in two weeks. And so I'm going to give you the first part, which is called Good Grief. And it's basically like how and why we grieve. The second part is going to be, which I think is so important, how to walk others through their grief as believers. I'll tell you, in my grief, and I don't mean this offensively, it's not something that people do intentionally, but I was really, really harmed and hurt by believers in my grief. And so I want to help people to be able to understand, like, the timing of things and what to say and what not to say. So that will be in two weeks. Promise it won't be so, so heavy. <laughs> so let's start today with defining grief. So according to good old Google, grief is the response to loss, particularly to the loss of someone or some living thing that has died to which a bond or affection was formed. Although conventionally focused on the emotional response to loss, grief also has physical, cognitive, behavioral, social, cultural, spiritual, and uh, philosophical dimensions. If I would have read this in my season of grief, I would have thought I was crazy because this does not give any kind of weight to the intensity that grief actually takes one through. So because of that, I've created my own definition. Grief is something you experience that no one can take you out of. Grief is all-consuming, and there's no escaping it. It's a spiritual, mental, physical, and emotional heaviness. It's a global certainty. Grief does not favor race. It doesn't favor gender or society or position. It's not curable. 
It's a process that feels irrational and makes no sense. And often, most often, changes the very being that you were before the loss. It is distress on the mind, body, and soul. Aren't you so glad you came to church today? (laughs) I often, as a counselor, I often explain the toll of grief to my clients. As grief is like being emotionally and mentally in a horrible car accident. You live through it, but the road to recovery is hard and long and painful. Unfortunately, though, the effects of the accident allow you to kind of never be the same, to, to be different. And the problem with grief, though, unlike a car accident, is we don't get to see the physical effects that grief leaves on us, the marks that it leaves on us. You know, if you, if, if, if you get in a car accident and you break both legs, no one says in three days, hey, you need to get up and walk and get back to work, right? And so because it doesn't leave physical marks, I think so often our society and even a lot of times ourselves kind of try to rush the process. We don't give permission to really what we need to in order to, to heal. To my point, go to your office tomorrow morning and ask how long you get off of work for bereavement. Three days? A week? It's almost criminal. Many times um, I encounter people who don't even know they're grieving because grief isn't just around death. They don't even know, and so they're experiencing this crazy process, but they don't even recognize it as grief. And so I've compiled a list um, of just grieving events that I just want people to really, I'm sure you know this, but it's such a good reminder to be aware of. So like death of a spouse, a child, a parent, sibling, other family members, friends, right? Death we know definitely pulls you into that grieving process. Divorce. Even a marital separation creates grief, imprisonment, um, personal injury or illness. I have a really good friend right now that she has a neck injury, and she was a dancer. She, I met her at CrossFit. She does Spartan races. She, she's very, very active and physical. And the doctors are like, stop, stop moving. And she is. She's deeply sad. And kind of she told me, like, for three weeks she was depressed because she just can't do what is her normal. Um, Unmet expectations in marriage, dismissal from from work. I'm not going to read all of it, but um, definitely like children leaving home. We think we get them ready for that, right? No one gets us ready for it, but we get them ready for that, and then all of a sudden they're gone, and it's like, how do I live and cope in in this new way? Um, and I know, I remember, I know it sounds dramatic, but I remember my first one leaving, and I, it felt like death. It literally felt like death. Change in schools, residences, change in traditions, holidays, loss of trust, loss of approval, loss of control of your body, all of those things can actually bring in the grieving process. So what does the Bible say about how to grieve? Um, And so I'm going to go through some biblical examples, but the key is that we are called to grief. We are 
called to experience grief. Here lies the problem, though, because when you get into Scripture, you can't get past Genesis before you start to see people grieving, right? You, got, you start to read about people experiencing grief. But it wasn't until after the fall. So there was no grief in the Garden of Eden, not until there was sin. See, the problem with grief is that we weren't created for it. That's why it's so painful. God never intended for us to have to go through that kind of pain and that kind of intensity. And that's why the brain struggled processing this thing called loss. So some biblical examples. Jacob died. Genesis 53 says, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming, and the Egyptians mourned for him for 70 days. When Aaron died, let me just check time. When Aaron died, Numbers 20, 29 says, when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, all the Israelites mourned for him for 30 days. When Moses died, Deuteronomy 34, 8 says, the Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning were over. When Jonathan and Saul died, 2 Samuel 1, 11 and 12, this kind, of, this kind of makes me laugh. But it says, Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening. <laughs> if we remember some of Pastor Chris's um, sermons on David and talking about Saul trying to kill him. So David did mourn for him, but it was... A few hours, <laughs> and then they moved on. Um, <laughs> then Lazarus, when Lazarus died, John eleven seventeen through 19 says, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been buried and in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary's house to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So what can we learn from these examples in Scripture regarding grief and its process. First, we must give permission to the time it takes. And there isn't a specific time. I'll tell you, that's why a lot of times grief makes us feel so crazy, because we compare, or people are not, I, I think our society truly gives somebody in, in a really, really um, close loss, maybe, maybe six weeks to two months. And then it's not said, but it's just, kind of put on us, like, let's, let's, let's go. You got to get up. You got to do what you need to do. But scripture shows us that time is a part of this process, and we must give permission to it. Secondly, and this is not an easy point. I even struggled writing it, but it is the truth. And as Ryan was there were in, in the songs he was singing, it, I was like, it's so true. Like, it over and over is like, you do have to invite the pain. We have to invite the pain and lean into the process. It's not anything that anyone wants to do. But at the same time, when you lean into the pain, you allow yourself to walk through the process that actually brings you to that healing and to that other side. I think that this is a good time to actually go through the process of grief, or the stages of grief, rather. I know that most of you probably know them, but... The majority of people that I come across, they say they know them, and then they really, when I say, okay, tell me what they are, they're like, mm, well, there's denial. 
and there's anger, but there's a lot to it. So there is denial in that first stage. It's denial and shock, and that's really the, that's God's way because we weren't created to grieve. Um, we weren't created for that kind of loss or that intensity. So it's the brain's way of helping absorb what's the, the reality of what we're going through without the intensity of the, the pain hitting us right away. The second is anger. And anger looks differently, and I'm going to go into this a lot in two weeks because I think as believers, we're really uncomfortable when grievers are angry, right? Because it's like, no, that's not true. That's not, he didn't do that or God didn't do that or whatever it is. But, um, but anger is a natural, healthy part of the process. I was so mad at my husband for drinking and, and being drunk. And I, to be honest, I was mad at myself for kicking him out and, and doing what I knew I needed to do. And there was a season where it just, I had to go through all of that anger in order to get, like I said, to the other side. Um, then there's bargaining. This is a tricky, tricky stage. It's, it's kind of on the cusp of like you're entering into this acceptance of what is, but you're still fighting against it. So it's the if only I had done this, or if only he had, or if only she had, if only I didn't let them get in that car, if only God, right? And so it's that bargaining in our mind um, in order to try to actually get us away from or out of what we're experiencing. And as they're doing more studies and grief, they're adding more stages, of course. I feel like that's with everything. Um, and so they are adding guilt. So I kind of put like... Um, bargaining is a little bit of an extension of guilt, which makes a lot of sense if you think about it. If I'm like, if I never kicked my husband out, he would have been home that night. Like, well, of course now I feel guilty, right? There's no, there's, there's no other way to feel. So guilt is a big part of the grieving process, and it's not wrong. And people want to correct that. It's not wrong. People have to move through that in their own time and in their own way. Then there's sadness, and I added depression. It, it can be one or the other. Again, we don't like people being depressed. We, we, we get scared, and we get fearful, and we want to fix them. But it is a natural part of grieving. It's okay to lay in bed and not be okay for a season. Absolutely, it's okay, and we need to give people permission for that. And then last is the acceptance and hope piece. Now, I want to be clear. Acceptance and hope doesn't mean, okay, you're all good and back to normal. That's not what that means. It actually means choosing to live with the consequences of your new reality. So you're choosing to live with the consequences of your new reality or your, the loss that, that you're in. And so you're not back to normal, but you most likely, in acceptance and hope, have a new normal. So we must be intentional in being present in the process and in the stages of grief, a lot of times we want to push it down. We want to avoid it. We think, oh, my gosh, here it comes. And we go do something else to distract us. And to be honest, that just keeps you in the process a lot longer. It's like taking a really long, long, long sideway towards something that you're trying to get to when you suppress it and don't deal with it. Um, and so I always say lean into the process, lean into the pain. There's no rhyme or reason around grief. In 1969, um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, so she studied human behavior after loss for many, many years. She's the one that actually created these stages. And at first, she declared that 
okay, the, a person, after all these years of studying, a person will, they'll, they'll go into denial and shock, and then they're going to get angry, and then they're going to start to bargain, and then they're going to start to feel really sad and maybe depressed, and then they're going to move into acceptance or hope. And then probably about a decade later, they realize, like, whoa, that's not at all what happens. And if it were like this, it would be much easier because we could make sense of it. Oh, I'm in the anger stage now. Okay, I know what to expect. The reality of grief is that you can feel all those things all at the same time. You can jump from one to the other and then go back, and then it, it, there's no rhyme or reason, and that's the craziness of it is that, I mean, I remember thinking, okay, I think I'm okay. I'm okay. And then something triggers. There was a Valentine's Day. I saw a man buying roses, and I fell completely apart in the grocery store. And so then I'm like, because I didn't know anything about this process, I'm like, so I'm not okay. Okay, I'm not okay. Here I go again. I'm not okay. But if I would have known, like, this is what the process looks like, it probably would have been a little easier to get through. Um, and then my last point in this area is, as far as, like, what does God want us to do with this, is as you begin to move through the stages, he wants us to seek him. He wants us to seek his strength and his guidance. And this, this is where I see a lot of that push and pull. And I think it depends on, you know, where you are with God. I think it depends on how the loss came about, if it was really shocking. You know, for me, like, I, I really pulled away from God when my husband died. Um, and then I felt like my dad was, like, adding insult to injury. And, and it wasn't God doing anything to me. I couldn't see it through that lens. The reality is, like, those men in my life made choices, right? And so I, I did eventually learn to lean in. But I think as believers, it's so important that we don't make God the enemy in our pain and our grief, but instead that we pull him in to us. And I'm, I'm actually going to, there's a song, it's so funny, Ryan ruined my whole point, a, a good point, a really cool point, but it's cool because it's just how God works. But in one of the songs that he sang today, um, there's also, I heard Torn Wells sings a new song called um, Joy Comes in the Morning. And, and so the same line was, was on the screen as we were singing. So I thought, oh, wow, God, is, God works in, in such cool ways. But in this one line, I love it, it says that if it's not good, then he's not done. And that is the reality of our grief. It isn't good. It doesn't feel good, at least. But it's just because God isn't done in that process, in that pain. So if God wants us to invite him in, to our pain and our grief, then, you know, how, how do we go about that in, in inviting him into this? So first, I, I want to share with you, like, what God does in all of it. And the first thing is that in our grief, God teaches us about ourselves and about his character. I was reading an article a while back. Um, it, it's, it's called Desiring God. And the the writer gave such an interesting point in, in the area of not just grief and loss, but also just in, in trials and in affliction. But he basically called 
like our pain and our trials and our affliction and our suffering as bitter fruit. Now, as believers, we know the term fruit, right? And fruit is good. Like, we want the sweet fruit. We want to be more like Christ, and we want all of those things. But if you think about grief and suffering and loss as a bitter fruit, here's the thing. Bitter fruit may not taste good, but it still carries nutrients and vitamins. There's still a purpose in that fruit that is good for us, essentially. And that's exactly what grief is. It's a bitter fruit that God still wants us to bite into because we learn more about him and more about ourselves in it. The article also goes on to talk about Martin, Martin Luther and some things that he kind of came to understand through his own trials and afflictions, and that is that not only do we come to know God or, or even his character more, but in studying his word, we actually learn more about what he has for us and our purpose and our future, who we are. Um, so many times we walk around not really sure, not knowing, like, what is my purpose? And it is in those times of grief and affliction, because we're typically a little more quieter and more still, that God can really, really speak into our life. Second, in, in the pain and desperation that grief causes, God also can draw into us. This is a time where he can draw into us, and we can actually then draw into him. I remember when the dust settled, so to speak, in my grief, in my process. Like the meals stopped coming, people stopped calling, people stopped coming over, and um, it got really quiet. And that's really when the pain hit because the distractions were no longer there for me. And I was lost. There was a, a, a long time I just felt lost. And, I mean, I was doing all of the things, but I, now I know I was grieving. I was just in that process of pain. And when I say lost, it was not bad. It's just it was very, very painful. But it was in those moments that I remember really God coming close to me. And I, I wouldn't change those moments for the world, even though they were the most challenging times of my life. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the Christian spirit. And this is a beautiful point. There is a unique and special promise of nearness that we are promised to enjoy when we're being afflicted. I've never felt that kind of nearness before, to be honest. I mean, certain times, but it's never been like when things are so good and so comfortable. And I'm like, man, I just really feel God's presence. It really has been more of those challenging and, and difficult times. And here's a hard truth. You know, we, we know this, we, we sang it this morning, we see it in scripture, and I'm going to actually say the verse in just a minute, but we know joy comes in the morning, right? The, the hard truth is that as joy comes, the, the nearness, that true nearness of God does start to dissipate. And so it's kind of like, you know, one or the other. We, we, we get to experience that, that closeness and that connection with God when we're in those difficult times. So like I said, this leads me to my next point, which is um, I want to first read Psalm 35. It says, his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I don't think in the scripture it was about a clock. It wasn't about a timeline like, um, you know, 
pain at night, joy in the morning. Like, that's just how it is. That's not what it meant. The, the, the reality is that God does not leave his children indefinitely in the depths of sorrow. That's what that means. He doesn't leave us in the depths of sorrow for too long. Joy comes eventually when, when the dawn comes, but it's always going to be in God's timing. We have to trust God's timing of healing because when we do, we, it builds our faith and it builds our relationship in him. And last, our grief allows us to experience comfort of others. And in turn, we get to comfort those that have gone through something similar. And so this produces love and relationship, which is very intentional on God's part. Trauma, grief, loss, pain, it actually bonds humans. It bonds us. It connects us. And we are created as relational beings. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 states, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of not some, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So I want to close with um, a sweet story. I'm going to cry. But it's a sweet story of just God's immense comfort over me. About five to six months into my grief, so after both my dad and my husband had passed, about five, six months in, I remember there was a theme in my life with other people and with people that were kind of close to me. And the theme was, I don't know how you're doing this. And to be honest, like that statement, or sometimes it was a question, how are you doing this, became very, very upsetting to me. And I, I don't necessarily, I guess I do know why. I do know why. The reason it was upsetting is because grief is already so confusing and so painful. And what would happen is when people would kind of question, I don't know how you're doing this, even though they had good intention, I was like, I don't know, should I not be doing this? Should I not be like going to work and taking care of, like I don't know what the right thing was or is. And, and so I remember just, it was prayer, but it was lamenting with God. Like I, what am I supposed to do here? I don't know. And I didn't hear the, the big booming voice. I did not hear that. But I absolutely heard him in my spirit. And I heard this, daughter, I didn't prepare them. I prepared you. And that has always stayed with me because it is such a comforting piece of the suffering that we're all going to endure one day. That he is not preparing the others that are watching you. He is preparing you when you lean into him and are close to him. And so I invite you to lean into God, into your process. Whatever that is or whatever that looks like, no one can define it for you. But trust that the pain is purposeful and that there's good in it no matter how bad it feels. Let me close in prayer. Well, dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we claim and proclaim you are a good God. Even in the midst of pain and, and suffering and things that we don't necessarily understand, Lord, we know that you are good. We know that this was really never your plan. But because of choices, you come alongside of us. You love us. You carry us. You strengthen us. 
And you empower us in those times where we look at somebody else and think we have no idea how they're getting through this. And so we're grateful for you. We're grateful that the creator of the universe loves us and cares about every single detail of our life. God, we give you today, we give you this time. I pray that this sermon would speak to to the people that need to hear it and that it would change their relationship with you more profoundly. I love you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.